I want to talk to you about remembering your baptism. I want to exhort and encourage you that throughout your life, this would be a hallmark in your journey with Jesus that you would remember your baptism. Now, in our Christian tradition, we don't think much of symbols or sacraments. And what I mean is they don't share a whole lot of depth or meaning for us in the sense of their weight or importance. Maybe we were raised in a Catholic or a mainline denomination, and so we've rejected some of this based on our past and um, maybe Catholic guilt or something like that. Um, Maybe the symbols and sacraments seem more as options than obligations or rites of passage. Of course, in our culture, we have symbols that carry great meaning for us. The American flag is one of those symbols for many people. Or even, for some, it's their state flag. I don't know who, but some people. Uh, Our team logo might be it, our alma mater. And what I mean by this, uh, or even our favorite product, these evoke deep emotion, right? They carry a sense of pride and embedded memory. So in some sense, I think we do get the idea behind symbol and sacrament. Most Christians know that Jesus himself gave us two sacraments or symbols to observe. These are baptism and what we commonly call communion or the Eucharist. So what is a sacrament? It's kind of a high church word that we're not very familiar with. We don't walk around using it, right? Nine to five at the office, nobody's really talking about sacraments, are they? But a sacrament is a Christian rite that is believed to have been ordained by Jesus Christ. And it's held to be a means of divine grace or to be a sign or symbol of a spiritual reality. I think about it, the Bible is actually filled with metaphor and imagery, symbols and signs. The psalmist constantly speaks of Yahweh as a rock. The name of Yahweh as a strong tower that the righteous can run into and are safe. Or here's another, that those who hope in Yahweh will renew their strength and will soar on wings like eagles. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me bears much fruit. See, the scriptures are filled with imagery, filled with signs and symbols. C.S. Lewis, in one of his essays, talked about how God did not look around at the world for contextual ways to relate to humanity, but instead has created the world in such a way as to relate to us in order to speak to us. So God, through these metaphors, through symbols, signs, and word pictures, wants to change the way we look at the world. He wants to speak to us through the scriptures. Of course, we know that. But he also wants to speak the truths of scripture seen in the world around us. He wants us to hear his word everywhere we go. You know, in our society, there is this false idea about a divide between the sacred and the secular. But this is a false idea because this is the world that God created. 
He filled it with his glory and with his goodness. I love the hymn, This Is My Father's World, because it reminds me of this truth. There's this line in it, This is my father's world. The birds their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white, declares its maker's praise. And then stanza after stanza just reminds us of how God is speaking to us in and through the created world. That these are messages to us about God's power, that these are messages to us about God's presence, about his love, about his care for us. I mean, think just about the way Jesus preached. Consider the lilies. They neither toil nor reap. And yet, look how beautifully they're clothed. Solomon wasn't even clothed like this. And will not your father care for you? See, the world is speaking to us. This is what the psalmist says, isn't it? That the heavens, that the earth is shouting to us, see how great God is. Consider his majesty. Consider his great power. Consider his care. That is the world that the psalmist and the other biblical writers lived in, a world alive with the presence of God, a world shouting to us about his glory and his presence among us. It's a beautiful and mysterious thing that God gave us these physical things to relate to us by and minister to our souls with. And so here's what I'm trying to say. He's calling to us through them. They're prophetic whispers telling us about our God, telling us his story, his promises to us to bring deeper understanding and connection to him. To incite deeper trust from us, deeper hope and deeper love. I mean, this is what poetry does, isn't it? Poetry doesn't just tell us a truth, but it takes us on a journey by painting a picture for us or telling us a story that we might have a personal experience. This is what scripture does, and this is what nature does. It invites us to not just know about God, but to know God by experience. See, my conviction is that God wants to speak to us in the ordinary through imagery and symbols because the ordinary is where real life is happening. Many of us, we need to develop this practical, down-to-earth spirituality. God is engaging with us all the time through his world. The question is, are we aware one poet put it this way, I'm not going to do it justice, but he talked about how there are burning bushes all around us, but most of us are just busy and distracted picking blueberries, totally unaware of God's presence and power at work in the world and in our lives. See, God wants to use his creation and our daily rhythms and habits in it to bring about spiritual formation. That as we engage in these rhythms and habits and these signs and symbols that would form greater faith, that would form greater hope and greater love in our lives. I love what Tish Harrison Warren said in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary. She says, the kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life 
are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. I think, especially here in Southern California, kind of the trend for many, many years has been that the Christian life is just one mountaintop experience after another, one event after another event after another event, but that does not actually work with ordinary lives. And so many of us have not figured out how to live out our faith in the mundane and the ordinary, in the boring, which is where most of our lives happen. When the thrill is gone in the relationship, when our children go through that difficult stage of life, when we hit disappointment after disappointment or just living boring lives. I'll tell you, I lived for 15 and a half years in a very sleepy city. And it really, I had to reorient my spirituality because I had gotten so used to kind of this event-driven, everything should be exciting and everything is awesome. Anybody see the Lego movie, right? Everything is awesome. But when everything is awesome, nothing is awesome. When everything is incredibly exciting, you've got to do it, then nothing is exciting. The kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. Spiritual life is sustained in the everyday and ordinary circumstances. Now, we're talking about baptism, right? So this morning, as we're talking about about baptism, what I want to do is I want to change the way you look at and think about water. Because this is something that we engage in every single day of our lives. I want to give you water as a part of a daily liturgy, a way that you engage in worship of our God. And in giving you this liturgy of water, I want you to remember your baptism. So let's talk a little bit about water. Water is something that is so common to life, which is why it becomes a very good liturgy for the ordinary. So common to life in the survival of the human race, the world is covered in water, 70% of it. Our body is made mostly of water, 60% of it. And we use water every day to grow things, to wash and clean our food, to wash and clean our bodies. We live it to give life. We also do a lot of playing in water. And so it's a common part of daily life that God wants to speak to us through and engage with us in. So let's talk about how water is used in Scripture. I think there are three main metaphors, at least that I see consistently in Scripture, and I just want to walk you through them. They are water as a picture of life, water as a picture of cleansing for dedication, And lastly, water as a sign or symbol of judgment and death. So let's talk about these. Water as life. So for the ancient Jews and Near East people, water played a significant role. In this area of the world, it's dry and arid. And especially in those days, like they didn't just have a tap, right? You just turn on. They didn't have bottle fillers or even bottled water. I mean, these are still relatively new things to the world. So water always speaks on a personal level of life because without water, life cannot exist, at least for that long. 
And the scriptures constantly speak of living or clean, flowing water. If you're talking about thirst or drinking water, it speaks of fulfillment, life-giving, blessing, and abundance. So this is the first metaphor that we have of water in scripture. It gives and brings life. The second is of cleansing. Water played a significant role in cleanliness or purity, not just washing their food, but also their bodies. You notice in the uh, narrative of scripture, the Red Sea and the Jordan crossing become a picture of this. As Israel passes through the sea, they're cleansed and dedicated to Yahweh. And later under Joshua's leadership, you have a new generation of Israelites who didn't pass through the Red Sea, they pass through the waters of the Jordan, and this is an act of cleansing, and they are then dedicated to Yahweh as they enter into the promised land. Also, we know through the reading of the law that the Jews had strict cleanliness codes, especially the Levitical priests, right? When water is spoken of in terms there, it's of cleansing or washing as a metaphor of humanity's spiritual filth or dirtiness versus spiritual purity or holiness. It's used as a picture of being cleansed from the guilt and shame of our sin in order to be dedicated to Yahweh and his service. We see this all throughout the book of Leviticus especially. And lastly, we have water as a picture or sign of judgment. This is a fun one. So in contrast to the two, water was also a terrifying thing for the Jew. And this is kind of lost on us especially those who live in Southern California on the West Coast. But specifically, the seas in Scripture were always a sign of chaos, of destruction, and death, right? People didn't go to the beach. That's like not a Jewish holiday. They were terrified of the beach. So you see this in the creation narrative, right? There's the primordial chaos waters that cover the earth. Darkness is over the face of the deep, but then God's spirit, it says, hovers over the deep, bringing life to order, bringing order out of chaos. Then as we go on in the narrative, we come to the flood. The flood narrative is a reversal of creation and order, where the chaotic waters cover the earth once again in an act of judgment a judgment that brings cleansing and renewal to the earth. Later on in the narrative, we see this in the Red Sea. It's more of a mixed metaphor, but Israel, remember, they go through the Red Sea and they're cleansed and dedicated to Yahweh, whereas the Egyptians go through and the waters engulf them in an act of judgment. Last one, think about the story of Jonah. This is a weird one. You read the story of Jonah, and we're told that the giant sea creature saves the prophet. Saves him from what? Like, in what scenario is Jaws the hero of the story, right? That's not how our stories work. But in Jonah, the giant sea creature swallows Jonah, and this is seen as an act of God's grace. Why? Because the waters are the place of death. They're the place of judgment and destruction. So these are the biblical metaphors of water. Water gives life. Water brings cleansing. Water is an act of judgment and death. Now, when we come to the New Testament, the main picture of water that is used is in terms of baptism. John's baptism is about repentance for sin. 
It's significant that John calls Israel to turn to God and repent of their sins because baptism among the Jews was reserved for Gentiles, outsiders who converted to Judaism. Those people were being cleansed from their pagan ways and simultaneously dedicated to Yahweh and his service. But John, as the one who's preparing the way for the Messiah, he says that Israel itself needs this cleansing and rededication of water baptism at the Jordan. It's fascinating to know that John is actually at the same location of the Jordan that the Israelites were when they crossed under Joshua. And this is no accident. John, of course, has been called and anointed by Yahweh to prepare the way of the Lord's coming by making his paths straight, preparing a highway in the wilderness for our God. And he does this by calling Israel back to the place of ancient Israel's baptism, the waters of the Jordan, be cleansed, be rededicated to Yahweh, to his kingdom purposes. John speaks of Israel repenting, turning around, turning back to Yahweh, being cleansed and dedicated now, John's baptism was an invitation to the nation to a new beginning, as I said, a rededication. And I wanted to say this and set this up because it's important for what happens next, because Jesus comes on the scene, and he is going to radically reinterpret forever the understanding of baptism, and he is going to begin to bring all of these biblical metaphors of water together. So what happens? Jesus comes along one day and insists that John baptize him. They have a small disagreement about this and how John thinks that he should actually be baptized by Jesus. Uh, but Jesus wins the argument, of course, as Jesus always does, right? And so John baptizes Jesus. And so as we're reading this, as the reader, the audience, we know that Jesus doesn't need repentance, he doesn't need cleansing because he has no sin. He is God's anointed king, the deliverer, the sinless one to take away the sin of the world. So what is this all about? Well, we're told in the gospel that when Jesus comes up out of the water, it says, heaven was torn open and the spirit descended on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love with you, I am well pleased. Isaiah, 600 years earlier, he's looking at all the turmoil going on in the world, and especially with his own people. And he cries out in anguish to God that you would tear open heaven and come down. Fix all of this, God. Tear open the divide that separates us. What we're being told, church, is that this is happening here and now in the person of Jesus. And that what is happening here in his baptism is going to tear open the divide that is between heaven and earth. Jesus' baptism is actually a foreshadow of his atoning death burial, and resurrection. This is what will bring ultimate glory to the Father. This is what will bring the spirit of God's presence and power into and upon the world. This great act will tear open the divide of heaven and earth. 
Christ, his life, his death, his burial and resurrection is the key to all of this. Now, later in the narrative, the gospel record two more times that Jesus refers to another baptism that he will undergo, a baptism of judgment and death. In the first instance, we're taken back to that scene where James and John approach Jesus and they say, hey, when you come into your glory, when you are enthroned in your kingdom, we would like to sit on your right hand and on your left hand. What James and John do not realize is in this story, the enthronement, the throne, the crown is actually the cross. And that there will be a place on the right hand and on the left hand of Jesus, but it is reserved for two thieves. And so Jesus responds to them, do you know what you're asking? Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And then again in Luke, Jesus says this, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. See, Jesus speaks of his death as a kind of baptism. It was there at the cross that Jesus is judged for the sins of the world, we know. Isaiah, again, told us, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So there at the cross, my sin, your sin, my oppression, your oppression, my rebellion, my transgression, your rebellion, your transgression, our sin was laid on Jesus. And so at the cross, I want you to think about this. Jesus is judged, as it were, under the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus becomes a pharaoh type. He is judged under the waters in order that God's people can come out safely to the other side, washed and dedicated to Yahweh. Or go back further into creation. Jesus at the cross undergoes a kind of decreation at the cross where the waters of judgment overwhelm him and he is cut off from the creation and cut off from life. This is how the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 69, puts it. Listen to this. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck and I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters and the floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help and my throat is parched, my eyes fail looking for my God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, and those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. Rescue me from the mire, and do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit of death close its mouth over me. It's there at the cross that Jesus undergoes a different kind of baptism where the waters of judgment cover him 
but we, his people, come out unscathed, cleansed, and dedicated to God. Now, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the victorious and resurrected Lord, he commissions his disciples and followers. He says, go into the world and proclaim my victory, baptizing all who believe in my name. At this point, baptism becomes a rite of entry into the church. It becomes a mark of all who give their allegiance to Jesus as king and savior. But it isn't actually until Paul that all of these metaphors come together and Paul shows us what this actually means for our daily discipleship to Jesus. So one more time, can we read through Romans 6, 1 through 14? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in resurrection life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him. I love how Paul uses this term. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. For death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought through death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin will have no dominion over us for we are not under law, but we are under grace." Amen. Listen to Paul. We were baptized into Jesus' death. This is what baptism is about. Buried with him in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too should walk in that same resurrection life. Baptism is a call to resurrection life. That's what it is. Our Christian understanding of baptism as a sacred ritual, as an act of identifying with Jesus' death, dying his death, being raised in his resurrection, comes from Paul. Paul was the one, as he studied the scriptures, he connects all the dots, he sees it's all there. But Paul doesn't stop at the ritual. Yes, it's a physical act that represents a greater reality, but baptism is not only an act or sacrament to fulfill, but a life that we are called to live. That's what it is. See, my life, of sin, selfishness, and self-governance, my life of brokenness 
has been put to death and buried with Jesus in his death and burial. The life that I'm now living, I live not for me, but for Jesus in order to put him on display. That's what my life is all about now since I have been buried with him. I live to put Jesus on display. And you also. We live now to live like Jesus. He served me, so we serve others. Our life is all about putting him on display, living under the newness of life, practicing resurrection, because that's the life that Jesus now lives. Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson in their book, Echoes of Exodus, they, they put this so well because I think many of us have this wrong understanding about freedom and what it means to be set free from sin. It's not just that we are set free from the past, but we are now freed for God. That's why scripture always uses this language. It doesn't say just like, oh yeah, go do whatever you want now. But no, now that you are God's people, walk in the freedom of the Spirit. Walk in the love of God. Listen to what they say. You say, escaping from Egypt is only half of the exodus. And it's easy for us to forget this. We live in an age where freedom is understood as merely being freed from, freed from oppression, from constraint or whatever. And this aspect of liberation, as wonderful as it is, is only half of the deal. In the scriptures, more emphasis is placed on the freedom for, freedom for worship, freedom for flourishing, freedom for growth in obedience and joy and glory. Human beings are not designed to be free from all constraint, slaves to nothing but our own passions, triumphantly enthroned as our own masters or even our own gods. Everybody serves somebody. So the point then of the exodus or coming through the Red Sea is not just for Israel or for us to find deliverance from serving the old master. It is for us to find delight in serving the new one. Delight in serving the new one. Growing into what it means to experience freedom in Christ. I've been using this phrase lately and I think I like it. Still testing it out. But my life of sanctification, my life now as I'm awaiting the kingdom of God, is I describe it as I am growing into God. I mean, Ephesians talks about this, right? That as we gather, and then as we scatter, and as we gather, that God has gifted individuals to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry so that we all achieve the fullness of stature, the mature manhood, that we become like Jesus. And so I've been describing this in this way. I am growing into Jesus. I'm growing into God. I'm growing continually in an understanding of what it means to be freed from sin and freed for God. Freed to live life under the love and care of my heavenly Father. Freed to live life not under the law, but under grace. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, I'm growing into God. 
Let us not forget that, church, that the Christian life is a life of adventure where we get to grow into God and we get to discover, as Paul says in Romans 12, God's will. We get to write the next chapters in the story of God. That's what we're being invited into, discovering this freedom that Christ purchased for us. Baptism then isn't about being cleansed of the sins of the past only, but being dedicated to God. It's about living in a whole new way. It's about a whole life participation with Jesus. It's about operating and relating to God as insiders and not outsiders, as sons and daughters, not slaves, and under grace, not law. It's about operating now as the family of God, how we serve one another, how we love one another, that we can let go of ego and competition because we're all sinners. We're all broken. We all need the grace of God and Jesus alone is the hero of the story. That's what it's about. Now I've said all this about baptism about the biblical idea of baptism, remember, because I want you, the next time you take a shower, the next time you wash your hands, next time you wash your food or you go to the beach, the river or the lake, I want you to remember your baptism. I want you to remember this call from God, this gift, this offer to the newness of life. I want you to remember that you have been blood-bought, that you are of incredible value to God, and to recalibrate your life in this daily liturgy of water. So as you engage with these everyday things, remember your baptism. How do you do that? First, remember Jesus' baptism. Remember the waters of judgment that overwhelmed Jesus. Remember the sacrificial death that he died in your place so you could be brought through judgment unharmed in order to be God's spirit-filled child and live in the newness of life in the here and now. Recall that Jesus is actually the true and greater Jonah who was cast into the sea of God's judgment in order that we might have the peaceful sea of God's grace and mercy poured over our lives. Remember that and think on that the next time you see and interact with water. You know, there's a Scottish parable, I guess is what it is. It's one of my favorites. Not that I have like a whole list of Scottish parables that I make my way through, but it's called The Fox and the Fleas. And it's this interesting tale that they tell in Scotland about what the fox will do when it is flea-ridden. And apparently, the fox will go through the hedgerow where all the thorns and briars are and where all the rocks and crags are, and it will go around and it will collect all of the wool that's been scraped off as the sheep have been, you know, in these pens. We'll go and collect all the wool and roll it up into a ball in its mouth. And then what it does is it goes down to these freezing cold waters of these Scottish rivers. These are, you know, like snow melt off. And what it does is it will slowly enter into the water. And as it does, 
the fleas begin to climb up the body of the fox, making its way to the ball of wool and all culminating there. Everybody gathers there in that ball of wool because it's the only safe place. And at the last second, the fox will dip its head under the water and that ball of wool will be washed away with the river. And that fox reemerges clean, rid of the fleas. Pretty epic. Jesus is the ball of wool. He is. The spotless lamb, as scripture calls him, who allows the evil of the whole world to be concentrated on himself. He takes the weight of the world's evil upon himself. The sins that we have done, the sins that have been committed against us. He takes upon himself the judgment for all of that evil so the world can reemerge, so we can reemerge clean, free to serve God, to know God, to be beloved children of God. Remember Jesus' baptism. But think of your own baptism into Christ. For you are baptized into his death, his burial, and resurrection. You are cleansed for freedom and sonship. Remember the words that the Father pronounced over Jesus there at the baptism. You are mine. I love you and I am pleased with you. This is what God the Father speaks over all those who are baptized into Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As the Father spoke over Jesus, he now speaks over us. You are mine. I love you, and I am pleased with you. Not for what you will be, not for what you could be, but as you are, for you are mine. This means, church, in order to live this resurrection life that I'm talking about, this newness of life that Jesus purchased for us, we must begin to and continually identify ourselves first and foremost as beloved children of God. This identity must proceed and inform all of our Christian activity. I mean, this is where so many of our problems come from. Our self-justification before God. Our self-justification before others. Our self-justification to ourselves. Christ sets you free from all of that. Let the cleansing water wash over you. You are loved. You belong to God and he is pleased with you. Stop justifying your existence by what you do or what you don't do. It is only from this place of sonship that we can grow into God, that we can begin to discover what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I love the way Brennan Manning puts it in his book, Abba's Child. He says this, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. 
for this is the true self and every other identity is illusion. So anything that comes into competition with this identity is a lie and is an imposter. A lying voice trying to get you to doubt your Abba, your father who loves you, who created you, who redeemed you, and wants to radically bless your life by bringing you into the fullness of resurrection life here and now, and yes, in the age to come. Remember your baptism. Remember who you are. You have been crucified with Christ. And now the life you live, you live by faithfulness of the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. That's what we're all about. And lastly, walk in the newness of life. Wendell Berry, he has a poem and he ends the poem. I still haven't figured the whole thing out. It's a little deep for me. I'm trying to get into poetry. Anybody else feel like that? Like you read poetry and you're just like, oh, I gotta read that again and again and again. That's me, I'm one of those. But I want to so bad. Anyway, a little bit about myself. Um, but he has this amazing poem and I don't get it completely. But the end, it's just this call, practice resurrection. And when I hear that phrase, my soul comes alive. Like, I want to discover what that is. I want to walk in the newness of life. I want to walk in the fullness of what Jesus purchased for me. I want to respond to that invitation from God. N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, he says this, every act of love every deed done in Christ and by the Spirit, every work of true creativity, whether it's doing justice or making peace, bringing healing to families or resisting temptation, seeking and winning true freedom is an earthly event in a long history of things that implement Jesus' own resurrection and anticipate the final new creation. These act as signposts of hope pointing back to the first resurrection and on to the second. This is the call, that you and I would live the life of the kingdom of the heavens, that we would live John 3.16 in a John 4.16 type of world. Remember, that's the thirsty woman at the well looking for life, that we would practice resurrection, that it would pour over us onto others, that it would be, as Jesus said, that well of water in a springing up into eternal life that is spilling out on the people that we come into contact with because they have just come into contact. People of death have just come in contact with resurrection life with the power of God. And so last thing, what if you use water as a daily liturgy to bring you each day to that recommitment and rededication? You know, I have this kind of neurotic practice that I do. People on staff are getting clued into it here, but 
I have my own little coffee set up in my office, but also one at home. And I do like the whole pour over thing, fresh ground coffee. It's like a full on ritual, right? I've got a gooseneck kettle. And as I do it, you know, I'm pouring that meticulously. I go clockwise, never counterclockwise. It's weird. It's like this ritual thing that I do every single morning. And yet I have begun to use this as a liturgy to engage with the Holy Spirit. Now, for me, I know this isn't the same for everybody. Some of you are tea drinkers, whatever that means. But coffee, just like, I get up in the morning to have a cup of coffee. I get excited about it. My wife is like, where's my coffee? It's like the first thing we talk about. So I use it in that way. Like, as coffee gives me energy and life, oh, Holy Spirit, may you be the true energy and life of my life. As I'm pouring the water over, this is no joke. I'm not making this stuff up. I am praying and asking that water would, the water of the Holy Spirit would pour over and cleanse me, that I would be dedicated to God and to his ways for that day. So I have begun to engage water as this daily liturgy to dedicate myself to the Lord, to his purposes, to his kingdom mission. Church, I'm inviting you in some way, shape, or form to do the same. That as you engage with water, that you would remember that you have died with Christ, you've been buried with him and raised up again in order to live this new resurrection life in Jesus. The kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. Remember your baptism. Let's pray. Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray now that you would come, Lord, in a real and tangible way with your presence and your power upon us. Lord, for some of us, we have forgotten our baptism. We have forgotten that we have been set free in order to be instruments, your instruments to do right, to do justice, to love mercy. And Lord, we have pretended as though our lives are for ourselves celebrating freedom for freedom's sake. But no, as Paul says, it is for freedom under you, Lord, that Christ has set us free. And so I pray this morning that for those of us who have forgotten our baptism, that we would be brought back, plunged as it were again under those waters and cleansed and rededicated for your service, that we might live the life of the kingdom of the heavens today and tomorrow, and again, and again, and again, until you come, that we might walk in the newness of life and begin to discover the freedom of what it means to be sons and daughters, what it means to be part of the family of God, a family of hope, a family of forgiveness, a family of love, and a family of peace. And Holy Spirit, we also pray for those who are still far from you, who have not experienced 
the freedom, sonship, and life that we've spoken of this morning. And we pray today that they would hear the call of your spirit and that they would be baptized, buried with Christ in his death, raised to new life and dedicated to you. That they would begin to experience and know that living water welling up in them, pouring out over them onto others that are thirsty, others who are dirty, filled with shame and guilt and regret. Lord, would they respond to your call and would they experience your resurrection life today? And Jesus, may we never forget your baptism for us. We thank you, Lord. You are good. You are faithful. Jesus, you're true.